Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are properly prepared. Scripture teaches that whenever a believer sins, that breaches the fellowship that we have with God. That rapport that we have as part of God's family uh, is uh, breached because of uh, the sin that violates God's character. So God has provided a grace-based solution, which simply means that we are to identify, to admit our sins to God when we confess those sins in privacy to him. 1 John 1, 9 guarantees that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have eternal forgiveness because of Christ's work on the cross and because when we trust in him our sins uh, that his death is applied to us. He has paid the penalty for our sins. But as we go through life experientially, there is a need to uh, seek uh, experiential forgiveness to make sure that we are in fellowship and that God the Holy Spirit's active ministry of maturing us, sanctifying us, uh, is ongoing. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And in your revelation of yourself to us, you have informed us as to what the purpose for human history is and what the destiny, what the future is and why things have been laid out the way they have. And understanding the future, we understand the present as well as the past. And it gives us the ability to properly orient to the events of our own lives and the events of our own history because we understand how we fit within this universal uh, conflict that has occurred from eternity past among the angels. As we see this played out, we see the final judgment brought to its head at the end of history in the tribulation period. And, Father, as we continue our study, we pray that we might realize that this is not something that is simply related to future events but the principles that are embedded in the 
events of the future are also evident. They're also very much a part of our lives today, and we have tremendous application for us personally as we live our lives today oriented to your plan and your purposes. And so we pray that as we study your word today, this might expand and this might inform us, expand our understanding of your plans and purposes. We may have a greater appreciation for what we go through in our own circumstances, in our own lives, on a day-to-day basis. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Revelation chapter 1. I mean, excuse me, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7, and we're beginning at verse 1. Now, last time, as we began to get into Revelation chapter 7, I wanted to focus our our attention on the question that is raised at the end of the sixth chapter. The sixth chapter describes for us, as we have seen, these six seal judgments. We haven't uh, had the introduction of the seventh one yet. We have these six seal judgments which are related to the opening of this scroll that has been taken by the Lamb of God in the heavenly throne room scene of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. That scroll has to do with the ownership, the rule on the planet. So a a core idea, a key idea that we see here in the outworking of the judgments in Revelation is this idea of uh, establishment of a rule on the planet. That idea is very important because what we touched on last time as I began to talk a little bit about God's plan for history is that God is establishing or actually reestablishing his rule on planet Earth. That rule was initially set up through his creature, Adam, the first man, who was created in the image and likeness of God, which has the idea that he is set over creation in God's place as God's representative to rule the Earth, to subdue the Earth as God's representative. But when Adam sinned, that authority was transferred to Satan so that the earth became the operational realm, the ruling realm of Satan, who's referred to as the prince of the power of the air, the god of this age, and other titles that indicate that he has, by virtue of Adam's rebellion, been placed in a position of rule over this planet. Now, in the uh, outworking of the tribulation, Jesus Christ is going to reestablish his rule, and these judgments that come as a result of these seven seals on that that scroll, which is his title deed to the planet, as it were, and the outworking of those judgments, it, it sets things up so that at the end, Jesus will return to the earth and establish his kingdom, his rule, upon the planet. That just gives it to us in a pretty much uh, an overview. But as these judgments are poured out on the earth, it seems to us that these are 
just unbelievably extreme. We've only looked at the first six. We haven't looked at the trumpet judgments yet or the seal judgments, and they are yet future. We're just in the first part of the tribulation, as I've seen here, probably about the first 21 months or so. So just still within the first couple of years, and the uh, things that have occurred are so uh, fantastic, so incredible, so global, so cataclysmic that we wonder how anyone could survive. And indeed, that's the question that's raised by these earth dwellers, those who are continuously in rebellion against God, that as they see the cataclysmic, astrophysical, geophysical calamities occurring in the sixth seal judgment, they seek to hide from the judgment of God because finally they understand this is from God, but they are so set in opposition to God and rebellion against God that they flee, they seek to hide from his judgment, and they conclude with the question at the end of uh, chapter 6, who's able to stand? Who is able to survive? And this is the first question that is given here, and the answer is what's laid out in chapter 7, and that is in two parts. The first part has to do with Jews. There will be 144,000 Jewish uh, believers that are sealed. And then the second half has to do with these martyrs that come from every tribe, every tongue, every nation. So those are the Gentiles. So we see that that uh, the answer is given in a, in a specialized way in order to address our attention to the fact that God is back to a, a plan that is focusing on Jews and Gentiles in the church age, Jewishness, is no longer an issue as it was in the Old Testament and as it will be in the future. It's not that they are no longer God's people, but the people of God today are the known as the church, and entry into the church takes place at the instant that you put your faith in Jesus Christ. At that instant, when you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins, there is a non-experiential reality that takes place, and that is called in the Bible the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit. And it is in that non-experiential event that the believer at the instant of faith in Christ is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we are placed into the body of Christ, which is another term for the church. We We are his body. And in the body of Christ, Scripture says that there is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor slave, for we are all one in the body of Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no longer anybody that's an ethnic Jew any more than it meant that slavery automatically was abolished or that uh, sex identification was abolished. It means that in, in contrast to the Old Testament Mosaic law, these aspects were no longer part of the spiritual life of the everyday believer. In the Old Testament, if you were a slave or if you were a woman, you did not have the same access into the tabernacle and temple that uh, a free Jewish male had. And so there were distinctions made, and those distinctions are no longer relevant in the church age in terms of one's spiritual status. But when we get into the tribulation, it appears that there is a return to this distinction. 
So that first question had to do with who can survive. The second question lies behind it because, as we see, there are numerous unbelievers who will trust Jesus Christ as their Savior during the tribulation period, and they don't uh, escape the judgment of God like church-age believers do. Church-age believers are going to be raptured, and we won't go through those judgments in the tribulation period, but God's going to pour out these horrendous judgments on the earth, and numerous believers are going to be present. And so that would raise another question, which is how can a loving God let not only his creatures in a broad sense, but also those who have trusted in Christ and are part of God's people, how can he allow them to go through this kind of suffering? So it brings into focus the whole question of suffering and evil and how can a loving God allow evil to exist uh, on the planet. And so that's kind of a background that I've pointed out for, adre- for focusing on this, this chapter. The, at the core of understanding and answering the question related to God's character, how can a loving God allow evil and suffering to take place uh, on the planet? As the focus is on his character, he is a God of love. How can a loving God do this? And we look at the various attributes of God. So at the very core of this, we're going to come back to this question of God's character because that happens to be also at the very core of this challenge that I touched on last time that Satan hurled at God when God uh, judged Satan, originally Lucifer, and the angels that followed him in his rebellion, their question was, well, how can a loving God do this? And I pointed out last time that there were various uh, aspects of that particular challenge that we could emphasize. Uh, one would be, how can a loving God do this to his creatures? Eternity in the lake of fire seems pretty harsh. Uh, why, do you, why is that so harsh uh, a judgment for wanting to be independent? Another facet of the question that Satan raised would be along the lines of, uh, you didn't even give me a chance to prove what I can do, and I want to show that I can be a better God than you can be. And so at the very core of this is really, just if you want to make it as simple as you can, uh, Satan's challenge is, who's the real God here? I want to be God, just, and I can do a better job of being God than you can. And so the real question is, who's the real God? Is it the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the creator God who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, or is the real God Satan, Lucifer? And that sets up, if you think that through, and we'll do that eventually, that sets up some really interesting implications for us. But it shows that at the very core of this is the issue of character, And character is a crucial component of leadership. Character is a crucial component of leadership. And the challenge that Satan is setting up relates to this idea of who can best run the universe. So the core of this is not only the issue of character, but the issue of power, the issue of control. You have, on the one hand, the integrity issue related to righteousness, 
And on the other hand, you have the issue of power, who can truly run things. So this says a lot about character as a crucial component in leadership and in ruling. The other element that comes into play here is just what Satan is doing in terms of his rebellion. What Satan is saying is we're fed up with the status quo. We want change. And so he was the first rebel in history to say that we just want to promote change. Change is good, but we see that change is not always good. And he wanted to change the ruler of the universe, and he wanted to change the rules of the universe. And that has always typified those who are hostile to the truth of God's word throughout history in the human realm of leadership because they are doing the same thing we've seen again and again in Romans chapter 1, suppressing the truth in unrighteousness and trying to reinvent reality, trying to reinvent the rules rather than orient themselves to those eternal rules and norms and standards that God has always established. And so in Satan's modus operandi, According to Ezekiel chapter 28, he trafficked in various lies and misrepresentations about God in order to sow discontent among the angels. And so God uh, convened a trial, was uh, going to bring judgment on the angels. We know from Matthew 25:41 that this was, the judgment was uh, eternity in the lake of fire, but they're not there yet. Jesus said it's been created for the Satan and his angels, but it hasn't been, uh, the, the penalty hasn't been executed yet. So why, um, why has that been postponed? And so this is what we have seen last time. What I pointed out last time is that God is demonstrating certain things in history. And so we had a definition I put up related to understanding why God allows all this evil and suffering in history. God's character, first and foremost, which relates to his righteousness, justice, love, is demonstrated most fully in a universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time. He is ultimately in control even of evil. He limits it to some degree, but he has to allow creatures to work out their negative volition, their rebellion, because in that he demonstrates the principle that there can only be genuine peace and harmony and stability when the creature is 100% dependent upon the Creator. So God's character is demonstrated most fully in this universe where evil is allowed to continue for a time in order for God to fully judge evil and end suffering. So there is a purpose to evil and suffering, and the purp- and there's purpose in evil and suffering in your life, in my life. There's purpose in the evil, the suffering that's going to come when we have another hurricane come in, other natural disasters, and the judgments in Revelation. There's a purpose behind this, and understanding that ultimately can only be the product of someone who knows every conceivable fact that can be known. You have to be omniscient. And Satan and no other creature is omniscient. So only God knows all the facts. And whenever anybody questions the goodness of God, they're basically saying they know more facts than God knows. That's a pretty arrogant claim. 
And when we say, well, God can't really be just and allow this kind of suffering to occur, what you're basically, basically saying is you know more facts than God knows, and therefore you're able to make a better decision. Ah, when you use that word better, what just happened? You brought values into it. Now you're, you're touching on the idea of what is really right and what is wrong. And so when a person judges God on that basis, they're also bringing to bear this whole question of, of God's not really righteous. He's not really just. He's not really good. And we can't really trust him. But as Abraham said in his conversation with God in Genesis 17, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? God will always do what is right because he knows all the facts and he is omnipotent, so he has the ability and the power uh, to control everything, to bring things about uh, the right way. And so this is what lies behind history. And this is at the very core of understanding what's going on here in uh, Revelation 7. And I pointed out that to answer this question on evil and, and suffering, we have to understand the nature of God, Secondly, the nature of evil and suffering. And third, the nature of justice. And what happens in almost every, uh, every non-biblical formation of the, the answer to this question about the existence of evil and suffering is you have uh, finite human beings dealing with some sort of finite understanding of God, some uh, limited, diluted view of evil and suffering, and some inadequate view of justice. And those are just the first three, but they also have a very poor view of history. And history is the laboratory in which God is working out this experiment to demonstrate his integrity and that he is omniscient, he is omnipotent, and he is righteous and just and love, and that there is a greater good that is achieved, and so allowing this kind of suffering and evil in history is justified, and that is going to be demonstrated. So with that, last time we began to look at the text, Revelation 7, uh, 1 through 3 introduces the chapter. There are these four angels depicted as standing at the four corners of the earth. In other words, it shows that they are in control of this, uh, these judgments and the, they influence the meteorology of the planet. And they're holding back the four winds of the earth. Winds are often uh, used in judgment passages in the scripture. And this relates to the fact that these angels are deputies from the Supreme Court of Heaven and they are a part of the uh, angels that God's using to carry out the judgments during the tribulation period. And that this, uh, these angels are going to be uh, asked to restrain themselves and not to release these, these winds that will come upon the earth for a uh, temporary period to secure the sealing of a set group of people. Verse 2, we read, I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, having the seal of the living God, and he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the bond servants of our God 
on their foreheads. Now, a couple of things to note before we uh, go any further is, first of all, this concept of sealing. This concept of sealing. This is based on the Greek word uh, sphragizo. Sphragizo is the same Greek word that is used in passages such as uh, Ephesians 1.13 and Ephesians 4.30, where it refers to the sealing of the church-age believer by the Holy Spirit. It, ha- it was used in legal literature. There, once again, we're bringing that concept of law into God's dealings with man. That's at the very core of this whole conflict, because what God is demonstrating is that he, from, and, and we'll get into this before we finish a little more this morning, but what God is demonstrating to Satan is that he's laid out on, uh, on clear, clearly defined terms at the very beginning of time, and it, before he changes anything, he lays things out within what the Bible reveals as these covenant frameworks, and a covenant's a contract. And so everything that God is doing is related to absolutes of divine law in terms of his character and his revelation. And so this legal idea becomes the framework for everything that God does. It's not emotion. It's not feeling. It's, you know, God's not just this, this uh, warm teddy bear up there in heaven who's just wringing his hands over all the things his creatures are doing. But he has, he does everything according to the rules, according to the laws and, that he establishes. And even this concept of sealing, sealing's a legal thing. We, we've all done this. If you've ever uh, filled out a will and had your signature notarized, if you've ever uh, bought a house where you had to have your signature notarized or any of those things, the, the, the notary had to put his seal on that document, and it's the same idea. It comes, uh, it's been practiced uh, through the ancient world. In the ancient world, they would put wax or clay on a document, and then they would take a ring or a stamp that had uh, an image. Sometimes it would be the family crest, something of that nature, and that would be then pressed upon that soft substance of the clay or the wax, and that was that that would uh, be a legal. Uh, seal. So this idea of sphragizo is the verb meaning to seal. It refers to the seal of a signet ring. It would indicate mark of ownership. Uh, sometimes it indicated the family. It was the family crest, the family seal. Uh, it was used to sign legal documents in much the same way that we do today. The point that I'm making here is that what God is doing is he's going to, in sealing these 144,000, he is just as the Holy Spirit protects us and secures us in our salvation, this is going to protect and secure them in terms of their role and mission in the tribulation period. And they are going to be protected from divine the, being hurt or harmed in these judgments that God pours out. But they are not being protected from the persecution and the attacks of those who are hostile to God because many of these will be martyred. In fact, when Jesus comes back, there is a, a picture uh, presented later on in Revelation of Jesus on Mount Zion surrounded by the 144,000. So they are apparently all become martyred during the tribulation period before the Lord, uh, before the Lord returns. Uh, another thing that we ought to note about this is that it's, it's placed upon their forehead 
And this was typically the location in the Roman world of where they would put the mark or the brand of a slave. So this is what's stated in the text that that these are marked out as bond servants or slaves of our God. So it, it very much uh, is in line with what is going on in the in the ancient world. So they are protected. And this idea of sealing has an Old Testament background in Ezekiel. If you were to look, we don't have time, but just jot down the reference in Ezekiel chapter 9, verses 4 through 6, there is a, a picture also related to judgment. God is about to judge uh, Judah and Jerusalem for idolatry prior to his judgment before he sends out his angel. The, an angel is told to go through the midst of the city to put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. In other words, these are those who uh, do not go along with all of the idolatry in Judah. And so they are going to have a seal put on them, and then in the judgment that follows in Ezekiel 9, 5, and 6, those who do not have this seal are those who are come under the, the judgment that is brought by God at that particular time. So there is this seal that is set forth on these uh, 144,000. Another thing to note as we leave this introductory part, uh, there is this emphasis three times on the earth, the sea, and the trees. Verse 1 mentions it. Verse 2 mentions the earth and the sea. Uh, Verse 3, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees. And what's going on here is that God is going to judge the creation because this is what pagan man turns to to worship in place of God. Idolatry is worshiping something in the creation rather than God, and this is exactly what's described again in Romans chapter 1, verses 20 and following, as they worship the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. So that which is worshiped in idolatry is brought under judgment. Well, that brings us to the next verse, verse 4, which uh, introduces the 144,000 and their their sealing. Um, Verses uh, 4 through 8 describe these 144,000. We read in verse 4, And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of of Israel. Then in verses 5 through 8, listed in a somewhat repetitive formula, we have the listing of each of the, the 12 tribes. There's the tribe of Judah and Reuben and Gad in verse 5. Verse 6, the tribe of Asher, Naphtali, and Menasheh. And verse 7, Simeon, Levi, Issachar. And verse 8, Zebulun and Joseph and Benjamin. These list these uh, 12 of the tribes of Israel, and in each uh, statement, these 12,000 are saved. 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. So there's a specificity that is given among these uh, enumerations. Now, there are several problems that have arisen in trying to interpret or understand this particular passage. 
And the first problem and the most fundamental problem is simply that of interpretation. How is it that we are to understand who these 144,000 are? And if you've studied anything about church history, then you know from approximately the middle of the 3rd century uh, A.D. up to the uh, late uh, 17th century, roughly 1650 to 1600, Christendom as a whole was dominated by an allegorical or spiritualized way of doing interpretation. So they had an amillennial view of the future. There's no literal millennium, no literal thousand-year kingdom. And as they interpreted prophetic passages, numbers weren't taken literally. The 1,000 years that's mentioned in Revelation 20 about the future kingdom uh, wasn't taken to be literal. It's spiritualized to be an idealized number, and it doesn't really mean uh, a literal 1,000 years. Many of the other numbers in the book of Revelation were not understood uh, in a literal way. They were understood to be uh, just figurative expressions uh, related to different different ideas depending on who you read. And it would vary a lot as to their understanding because once you slip your anchor of literal interpretation, then it can become extremely subjective. So... You either have people who hold to a consistent literal interpretation or you have those who are either inconsistent or they just don't have a literal interpretation at all. Those who understand these numbers to be literal realize that this passage is talking about 12,000 Jewish males from each of the 12 Jewish tribes listed and that they will be sealed by the seal of God, which also indicates their salvation for a total of 144,000 Jewish males. No more, no less. This is a select group of Jewish males for a select purpose in the tribulation period. Those who hold to a somewhat of an inconsistent view or a symbolic view or spiritualized view have all kinds of different uh, interpretations. I'm not going to go into detail on these, but you've probably heard them before. There are some who think that this just represents an idealized number of Christians. This is a, or a special elite group of Christians that are going to be singled out during the tribulation period. That idea of it being an elite group of Christians is sometimes picked up by various cult groups that uh, want to identify themselves as the 144,000, such as the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, several other groups have claimed to be the 144,000. They always have a problem, though, once their small group becomes larger and they have more than 144,000, then they have to start changing uh, their doctrines to uh, fit the, the circumstances. Others challenge the notion that all of these tribes can even be identified. This is a second problem that we face in understanding or interpreting the passage because there are those who have promulgated the myth of the so-called ten lost tribes of Israel. Now, the ten lost tribes of Israel is a phrase that refers to the ten tribes that were separated into the northern kingdom of Israel, which occurred when Jeroboam led a revolt against Solomon's son Rehoboam in approximately 927 B.C. 
and the kingdom of David and Solomon split into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom as part of God's discipline on the nation for following Solomon into idolatry during the latter years of his reign. This is what we're studying in our Bible class on 1 Kings on Tuesday night, and we're right at the point of this uh, particular rebellion. So you had two tribes in the south, Judah and Benjamin. You had the other ten tribes in the north. And the northern kingdom was conquered and the, the, the populace scattered and repopulated into other areas of the Assyrian Empire when the Assyrians conquered them in 722 B.C. Unlike the Babylonian captivity where the, those who were taken into captivity stayed in somewhat of a homogenous group, the, those who were taken or deported from the northern kingdom were moved, uh, according to typical Assyrian policy, they were moved to various different parts of the Assyrian Empire, and the uh, allegation is that they just interbred, intermingled with the various other ethnic groups, and so their identity was lost, and so they're referred to as the Ten Lost Tribes. Now, that has certainly given rise to some very odd views, such as the view that the Anglo-Saxons are really the Ten Lost Tribes, and that's called British Israelitism, and that's pretty much a fantasy, but I'm always amazed by some people who... Uh, buy into something like that, or they try to identify the, the Khazars with the ten lost tribes of Israel or, or other groups. But uh, this can't really, uh, th- this doesn't really work out. It's not consistent with history. The reality is that it's wrong to think of them as lost. They're not lost. While there were many Israelites that were transferred and deported and moved around the Assyrian Empire, there were a a large number that were moved, that that, uh, rather moved south as they saw the looming Assyrian threat and as they listened to the prophets such as Isaiah and, uh, and others who warned of the coming judgment from God. So the first problem we address is the is the problem of interpretation, and these numbers should be taken literally. They refer to Jews. They refer to precisely 12,000 Jews from each tribe, and they refer to the 144,000 uh, Jewish males. The second problem is identifying the lost tribes, and um, this is pretty much a myth. They uh, many Jews know who they are, and even today they can identify which tribe they're from, even among the so-called ten lost tribes, because they have been very precise down through the years in maintaining uh, family genealogies. Even more so, we have biblical records of this. Uh, We know that prior to 722, as I just stated, many in the north moved south to get away from the Assyrians. Many others had moved down earlier because as the northern kingdom became more apostate, more idolatrous, uh, they were oriented to God, they were believers, and they moved south. You also have uh, mention of this in, in Scripture. Uh, for, uh, for example, many Levites moved south because when Jeroboam set up the northern kingdom, he set up an alternate worship site. So he sets up a competing religious system, and he's not going to necessarily use Levites. And so the Levites who were to serve in the temple moved south to serve in the temple. Uh, in the 
uh, 9th century B.C., uh, King Asa of Judah instituted various reforms in the southern kingdom, and as a result of that, Scripture identifies large numbers from the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Menasheh, and the tribe of Simeon uh, in terms of moving south. This is indicated in Second Chronicles chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, in comparison with First Chronicles 4, 24 to 43. That would be Second Chronicles 15, 8 and 9, and First Chronicles 4, 24 to 23. And then when the uh, Jews return from the Babylonian captivity after the, the northern kingdom go, is destroyed in 722. The southern kingdom is conquered by uh, Babylon in 586 B.C. They're out under discipline until the first return begins under Zerubbabel approximately 537. And when Zerubbabel returns, he lists the tribal affiliations of many of those that returned with them, and these are found in Ezra, uh, chapter 2, verse 28, as well as Nehemiah, uh, chapter 12, verses 44 to 47. And those passages record members from all of the tribes returning to Judah, including all those so-called ten lost tribes. First Chronicles chapter 9, verses 1 through 3, lists among those who returned all uh, all, from all the tribes except for Ephraim and Menasheh. So this gives us a, a pretty good idea that there's no such thing as ten lost tribes. Now, some other observations are in order just to fit this uh, into our general understanding of, uh, of biblical, the flow of biblical history. So we have here a chart indicating the descendants of Jacob. The sons of Jacob were the progenitors of these 12 tribes. He had 12 sons and one daughter. Uh, Abraham is the head of the Jewish race, the first Jew, and he and Sarah had a son, Isaac, through which the line uh, proceeded, and then he had a son, Jacob. Uh, Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel, and then each of them gave him one of their concubines, and so through them he had his children. So through uh, Leah he had Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Uh, Through Bilhah, Rachel's concubine, he had Dan and Naphtali. Through Zilpah, Leah's uh, concubine, uh, Leah's servant who became Jacob's concubine. Uh, you have Gad and Asher, and then Leah had two more sons, Issachar and Zebulun, and then finally uh, Rachel had uh, Bill, uh, Rachel had Joseph and Benjamin, and then died uh, in childbirth just after giving birth to Benjamin. These are the tribes. Now you'll notice if you look at uh, uh, the genealogy, the tribes that are listed here in uh, Revelation 7, 5 through, 9, 5 through 8, that the list varies a little bit. You don't have the tribe of Dan mentioned, and you don't have uh, the tribe of Ephraim mentioned. See, Joseph uh, was blessed by God with a double portion. He had two sons, Ephraim and Menasheh, and so you never see Joseph or rarely see Joseph listed in a tribal list. What you usually see is the, the other 11 brothers plus, uh, 
Ephraim or Menasheh, and to get 12, usually one or the others are left out. In 19 listings of the names of the tribes, uh, they each differ from one another. There's always some sort of variation, and you have to look at the context as to what is being emphasized and why and who's being left out and why. Sometimes Joseph's name is placed instead of uh, Ephraim and Menasheh. Sometimes uh, Ephraim's name stands for both of them. I, you just have various reasons, and depending on each particular uh, uh, context, and none of the lists even follow the same order. The list here is uh, closest to a list given in Ezekiel 48:31 uh, to 35, and that list includes uh, Levi and Joseph, as does this particular list. Now we should probably ask the question: uh, Why does why are Ephraim and Dan left out? And the best answer is that both of those tribes were identified with idolatry in the Old Testament. There are some that come along and, and try to suggest that um, that uh, Dan is uh, left out because he's the tribe of the Antichrist, but we'll see the Antichrist is a Gentile on the one hand. Robert Thomas, who has written one of the most extensive commentaries on Revelation, calls that a rather fanciful interpretation of Genesis 49 that can't be taken seriously. Uh, if you look at a map, we have here on the, on the screen, uh, Dan's original tribal allotment was in this coastal area. Here's Joppa, which is now surrounded by Tel Aviv. And it, it was sort of L-shaped along the coast here, and then it kind of came back towards, uh, uh, towards Jerusalem. Or is Jerusalem down there? So it comes from Joppa down here along the coast and then sort of came back this way. They were never able to conquer the coastal Canaanites. So several generations later, and this is recorded in the book of Judges, they sent out a reconnaissance team to try to find a place where they, they could, uh, where they could reestablish themselves. In other words, they said, go out and find some wimpy Canaanites that we can defeat and we'll go kick them out of the land. And uh, we'll take over. We'll steal their land uh, from them, and so that's uh, that is what is recorded in the book of Judges in Judges chapter uh, 18. And it's interesting because they send out these spies, and on their way they go through the tribal area of Ephraim, located here in the uh, hill country of uh, the central highlands, the central hill country, just north of Jerusalem. And as they go through there, they run across this, this uh, uh, Levite who has joined up with Micah. There's this apostate there who sets up a little alternate, alternate worship center, and he hires this renegade uh, Levite to uh, run his uh, apostate religion. And so these two, two or three guys from Dan are impressed with him, and so they convince him, they bribe him to come along with them, and so they go all the way up north where this arrow goes, up to this area north of the Galilee, and they're going to establish themselves at an area uh, known as Laish and later, Tel, later Dan and modern uh, Tel Dan. 
And so the tribe of the, these guys will go back to, to the rest of the tribe of Dan and say, hey, we found a place we can pretty much defeat these guys up at, up at, up at Laish and we can establish ourselves there and take over their, their territory. And so they do that. And when they do that, they take this renegade Levite with them and they set up an alternate uh, worship center up there and they set up uh, an idolatrous worship uh, that is that dominates, and this is one reason that later on when Jeroboam sets up the northern kingdom, he sets up a, a temple there that is going to compete with the temple in Jerusalem. He has two alternate worship sites in the northern kingdom, one at Bethel and one up at, um, one up at, uh, at Laish, or, or, or later becomes known as Dan. This is a, a picture of the overall archaeological site that is, that is located there. You see, in the front, this was the area where they had the sacrificial altar, and then they had uh, a, a bema seat, judgment seat up here on this raised platform to the right. What it actually looks like is here. You see the uh, metal stand that's been reconstructed to give some idea of the size of the altar that Jeroboam established there. You see the steps on the right uh, going up to the bema seat, but this was the site where they uh, located their idolatrous worship. So both Ephraim and Dan are associated with idolatry, and God had promised pretty serious punishment to Israel if they were to get involved in idolatry. So for that reason, these names are left out of the list. However, we do know that in the uh, later uh, lists related to the tribe of Dan in the Millennial Kingdom. Dan is located there, which is a just a a picture of God's uh, judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 2, Dan is named first in the future distribution of land among the tribes of Israel. So that that shows God's grace. But at this point, Dan is left out for that reason because they've been associated with idolatry. And, of course, Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, verses 18 through 21, talks about how God, as part of his judgment on the nation, is going to separate from the nation all anyone who leads the tribes into idolatry. So this is why you don't have Ephraim or Dan mentioned here. Now, the other question that we have to address is why, why this emphasis on Israel? What is really going on here? And this goes to the question of God's character. Because God in the Old Testament promised to Abraham that he would give him a piece of real estate. You have a specific promise of a specific piece of real estate in the land, and God would give it to Abraham and his descendants. And that's re reiterated several times in the stories uh, related to Abraham from Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 24. So if God is going to be God, remember Satan wants to be God. If God is going to be God, God has to be able to bring about his promise. If Satan can block God from fulfilling his promise to Abraham, then uh, Satan shows that God can't be God and he can be God. He's outmaneuvered God. So this is why the Jews are at the very core of history ever since 
Genesis chapter 12. This is why anti-Semitism is such an egregious uh, thinking, because when you're anti-Semitic, you are on Satan's side. Satan is trying to destroy the Jews, destroy Israel, keep God from fulfilling his promises to Israel. And these go back to the basic covenants that God established. Remember, I pointed out earlier that God has defined his relations with man on the basis of these legal contracts. The Abrahamic covenant is given in a succinct form in Genesis chapter 12 and includes the promise of land, a promise of an eternal seed, and a promise of blessing through the seed. These are expanded later on in three distinct covenants, the Israel land covenant or Palestinian covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And if, if Satan can keep God from fulfilling these covenants, then he's going to say that he has won. Now, there's one other aspect that comes to play here, and that goes back to a promise in the Old Testament uh, related to the law. Just a couple of quick things. We're running short on time here, but I want to close out with this. God had promised within the Mosaic Law that if Israel succumbed to idolatry, he would scatter them among all the nations. But he embedded within those promises a prediction that God would bring them all back to the land as a regenerate people. For example, Deuteronomy uh, 4, 26 and 27. Just look at verse uh, 27. Moses said, The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God. You will find him if you seek him with your uh, all your heart and with all your soul. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, he talks about the fact that he will scatter them among all the nations. But he says, if you are among all the nations, verse 1, now it shall come to pass when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God drives you, and you return to the Lord your God and obey his voice according to all that I command you, it's going on to verse 3, that the Lord your God will bring you back from captivity and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations. That is what God is doing in this first part of Revelation 7 through the calling out of these 144,000. God is going to send them as missionaries, as evangelists to Israel to proclaim the gospel that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and eventually through them large numbers of Jews will finally turn to the Lord and those are the ones that ultimately will be brought back to the land as a regenerate people at the end of the tribulation period. And so these verses here, verses four, uh, 5 through 8, Dealing with the calling out of these 144,000 is a tremendous sign of God's grace to rebellious Israel down through the ages, and it is a reinforces God's faithfulness to his word. He never breaks his promises, and it reinforces the fact that character is so crucial in leadership, especially when it comes to who is God. Because God is going to show that he is able to fulfill his promises. Satan cannot block him, and God will win. That is the focal point 
that we come to at the end of the tribulation period. So the tribulation period wraps up this angelic conflict demonstrating Satan's inability to fulfill his claims to be God and that only God can be God. But it reinforces for us that no matter what suffering we go through, what adversity we face, that God is always going to be true to his promises just as he's always true to his promises to Israel. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study these things this morning, to be reminded of your faithfulness, to realize that you and your omniscience know all the facts, all the data, and your omnipotence, you are more powerful than anything that we experience, anything that we see, and in your grace you have provided us the perfect solution. Your grace provided that ultimate solution through your son Jesus Christ who died on the cross as a substitute for our sins and that he paid that penalty so that by trusting in him alone we might have eternal life. Father, it's our prayer that there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to trust that Jesus died for them, trusting in him and him alone, for their salvation. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But you have revealed that solution to us in Jesus Christ who died for our sins. He bore the penalty in our place so that when we trust in him, then you give us eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge each one this morning with the truths that we studied today, reminder of your faithfulness in all things. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.